0: There's a good reason that dogs are considered man's best friend. Not only is it their unwavering loyalty and loving nature towards us as pet parents, but the bond we develop with them as our companions is like no other. The term best friend usually isn't used lightly either, as it describes a partnership that sits above the rest, which is why I love that our next guest chose that term to define their partnership with the animal kingdom. This episode of Unconditional Love Stories is with the founders of the Best Friends Animal Society, a group which advocates the no-kill movement and animal rescue. They have done some truly remarkable things in 35 years of work, developing in a truly organic way from the ground up. Before we dive in, a quick thank you to our sponsors, Front of the Pack, who makes conversations like this one possible. They develop supplements that are science-backed for your four-legged pal to give them all the extra nutrients and goodness they need. Check them out at FOTP.com. Now, cast your mind back to 1984, if you're able. When a group of friends from all walks of life had one thing in common, their passion that every animal is worth saving. That's how Best Friends Animal Society started. Husband and wife, Francis and Silva Batista, are two of the co-founders, instrumental in the society's success and in developing the much-loved sanctuary, which it's synonymous with, which is where they join me for this conversation.
1: We are about 50 miles north of the Grand Canyon uh, in southern Utah, 10 miles north of a little town called Kanab. Kanab used to be a Western movie town. So back in the day, uh, they made lots and lots of movies here. And so a lot of that classic Western movie landscape, which was often labeled Texas, was actually Utah. We're here in the middle of what they call the Grand Staircase. So if you were, say, heading up, towards the Grand Canyon, you were looking back to the north, you'd see a series of steps, of monumental steps, each one a different geologic formation of cliffs. So there's the red cliffs, the white cliffs, the pink cliffs, the brown cliffs, and we are between the red cliffs and the white cliffs. It really is a spectacularly beautiful place. It wouldn't be unfamiliar to a lot of folks who have seen the old Westerns. In fact, the old Lone Ranger series was shot around here uh, the Outlaw Josie Wales, uh, The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing, McKenna's Gold, you know, endless of these old uh, classic westerns were all shot in this location.
0: Wow, wow. I mean, it's such an inspiring spot, and it uh, certainly is in keeping with the inspiring work that you two have been up to over the the many years whilst you've been there. Before we really get into to Best Friends and the organization that, that you've helped to create, I just wanted to understand sort of where you guys have both come from. So I suppose I'll start with you, Silver, because clearly not an American accent. I'm pretty sure that's not from Utah. Talk to me, um, <laughs> talk to me about how you found yourself um, in cowboy country.
2: Yes, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Well, actually, I grew up in Bristol, worked for a number of years in London, and uh, moved to Canada, and then America. And met with these amazing group of people who were just fascinating to me and dedicated and determined, full of commitment. And I just thought, that's it. That's it. Whatever it takes, I'm in.
0: (laughs) And were you always uh, an animal person? Growing up in Bristol, the girl that always took the stray dogs home?
2: We had a certain amount. Where I lived... Was at the end of a cul-de-sac that went down to the beach, and a lot of visitors would come in the summer. And uh, our dog, as as many did in those days, uh, our dog was loose and used to go out down to the beach and back. And in summer, come back very, very fat because of everybody. And we got a letter from the local um, it wasn't really a humane society, but it was that kind of thing saying, "Please don't let your dog in this." <laughs> so it was sort of. Household that that most people had back then, with you know, cats and dogs being, you know, quite coming and going, you know,
0: quite free in their movements. Quite free. Yeah. yeah. What did you aspire to be at that age, and what what was your sort of first professional outing?
2: Well, I went I went through art college and then travelled quite a bit, um, but I I knew I wanted to do something that was of value that had some kind of mission behind it, but I didn't know what that was. So in the meantime, I thought, well, what I could do is do no evil kind of thing <laughs> so i decided to become a gardener so i went to to hyde park and i said uh i'd like to become a gardener and they said okay start on monday and i said i don't really know anything about gardening and they said that's all right we'll teach you and within a very short time i was doing the gardens in buckingham palace
0: <laughs> wow wow so you were and- obviously a quick study
2: <laughs> they, it, they were more concerned about technique than they really were about needing me to know a lot but it was fun it was an interesting time
0: francis <laughs> how about yourself uh, are you originally from from utah or- i'm originally from
1: new york um and i had no idea i would wind up here although uh the west was always very fascinating to me i i grew up with animals i always had dogs and cats but when your eyes open to the situation when you see that Um, The the stray dog on the highway, when you see the cats at at the dumpster behind the food store, when you see these situations, then, and you realize the need, and then you connect, connect with it, or you find a strain, you go to the shelter and you see what the the situation in the shelter. And and in those days, the shelters in the United States were just horrific. You can't not see it. And so it became much more of an urgent and compelling. Cause in my life and um, and, in the things I was doing, and even as a child,
0: did you see that?
1: I didn't see that as a child, particularly. I mean, I was obviously uh, very attached to my pets and loved them, and they were, uh, you know, my sort of my best friends. But I didn't didn't have a kind of a a social sensibility uh, until later, until I really was in, in college.
2: Now we have so many visitors. Um, that are bringing their their children who are bringing, you know, like yesterday I heard about two boys who made $400 cutting grass and came here to donate it. And that's not uncommon these days for children to be thinking first and foremost, what can I do to help the animals?
0: It's quite remarkable that what started out as a group of scrappy friends with a shared passion has seen four decades of change when it comes to the landscape of the no-kill movement and how pet shelters operate. But it really is that simple, as Francis explained.
1: We've known each other since the 1960s. We worked together, lived together. We advocated for animal welfare in various forums, you know, pamphleteering and leafleting and advocating. And then that gave way in the 1970s to actual shelter rescue. Then as as a group felt, well, you know, what would be really great would be to get a place that we could both bring the animals that we've rescued and also that we could uh, create a place that we could all live and bring other people to see this thing. And, you know, it was, it was all kind of amorphous and idealistic. And because I had once worked in real estate, I would sort of say, okay, you handle that. <laughs> and so every time I went on a drive up through Utah, I went to the the local Bureau of Land Management Office, which is a federal uh, agency that oversees, you know, millions of acres of, of federal land. And and Utah has a lot of federal land in it because it came in as a state and part of the state deal was, okay, you give us the <laughs> land, you bring it on the state, you know, but they, in any event, um there is so much beautiful uh, blm land here but that's not for sale so i got one of these maps that indicated which land was owned and which wasn't and i just went knocking on doors um and i located this parcel uh on happenstance from you know map gazing and going around and tapping on doors and they said well yeah it is we do want to sell it and so it was a ridiculous bargain because it had been a movie ranch back in the day the Westerns had gone out of style and the town itself had kind of priced itself out of the, the, the movie making market. It was one of the main industries in town. Every, every year, they would um, rent out their farm equipment, their horses, they would be extras, they would, you know, provide food and catering and, and all the things that, you know, the back lot of a movie set needs, the local community was geared up to do. But as that all faded, movies went away. And so this, particular place really had little value. And so we were able to get it for a song. And it was just kind of one of those crazy lucky things that uh, will never happen again. And now we have the the, the privilege of being here. And we have about 1,500 dogs, cats, horses, farm animals, injured wild birds, We've got a, about 100 miles of fiber optics, plumbing, electricity, roads. It's really become just an amazing place. And we have about thirty to 40,000 visitors a year from all over the world.
2: And I have to say that when he made the agreement on the property, it was very raw land, just sage, sand, and juniper, Or the roads, the electricity, water, buildings, everything has to be put in by us. So that was quite interesting.
1: Yeah, and we had to figure it out, you know, so we had those kind of Reader's Digest, uh, Time Life, Do It Yourself books on how to- Like a how-to how guide to, to, to
0: setting up a, a, an animal sanctuary.
1: How to build. So a lot of things, a lot of the original buildings we did ourselves and a lot of the uh, materials we, you know, scavenged. So there's beautiful wraparound windows, two side wind glass doors that you go out to get onto the patio. When we got them, one of them said Hertz and the other said Avis. They came out of an airport. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, so it was a lot a lot like that, where you just kind of had to, we're living by your wits. And but you
2: wouldn't know it to look at it. It's stunning, the whole place.
1: It was a great adventure and a lot of fun. When we started doing the sanctuary work, one of our dogs wound up missing. We found it in a local pound, which was a tin roof shed in the back of a field behind the airport. And it was so depressing. We thought anything we did would have to be better than this. And so... Uh, I was dispatched to go talk to the mayor and say, hey, we'd like to do animal control. And he said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It was really no conversation. They could care less. Within a few years, we had more animals we knew what to do with. And we were obviously, we weren't going to hurt them. And so our commitment was to their lives and their well-being. And we had to create an organization from scratch to really uh, support all of this. And we kind of reinvented the wheel along the way. And a lot of Cases, in most cases, we reinvented a better wheel. So it was positive messaging, a whole different
2: approach. You pointed out at the beginning that the the beauty of the land and how that was an interesting reflection of the work we do. And that has always been part of everything that we've done. Every bit of material, every photo we sent out, every magazine has always been about the positive image and the absolute joy, delight, entertainment, loyalty of, of animals. That's the whole kind of underlying thing of everything we do
0: everything i've read about about you guys screams kindness and, and joy and the positivity that that animals give us and the companionship that that they give us and that unconditional love which is an overwhelmingly positive and happy thing um, and i love the fact that it seems that that best friends as an organization still after 35 years you guys still you know really hold to that the sanctuary was was being built by you guys. And then alongside that, of course, I'm sure I'm honing your skills on on welfare and making sure that the animals are enriched and and how you think. But I, I understand that uh, in the early 90s, there was a, a, a bit of a, an issue financially, which meant that you sort of had to change things up until that point. You were kind of a, you know, this sort of ragtag, scrappy group of people that were just doing their best. And then you sort of had to start turning it into something a little bit more like an organization.
1: Yes, uh, indeed. That's when we started going out and meeting people and, you know, um, building a membership. And we had a variety of skill sets. And uh, some of the most important skill sets that we had at that time were those folks who could put together a letter, knew how to communicate, could build that bond with people. The editor of the magazine that we first started was not a person. It was an owl. Um, So, you know, we had... (laughs) Uh, we we always had this idea that it was the animal. Tomato the, am-
2: the, cat, Tomato the cat
1: was the, one of the journalists, one of the reporters. Uh, Tammy the greyhound was a roving reporter. So it was the animals were actually the messengers. We were seriously really sort of the facilitators for all of this, and and that was one of the great innovations. Is a lot for kind of, but the, we we're just having fun with it. And so the fun that we had was letting the animals tell their stories, and being the facilitator for the animals telling their stories, and observing them how they behave, what they you know like. Um, Tomato always had he had chronic respiratory condition. He was a, a young cat had upper respiratory. It never got over, and he would always have to take yucky medicine. He was always complaining about his medicine, and he had the sneezes, and he was that, but it was always talking about what was going on in the cattery and who was doing what. And this cat over here is really you know he's trying to get away with something. It was kind of funny. And so we we built this kind of relationship with the public based on our affection for the animals mm-hmm. and on the kind of the conceit and the presumption that you talk to the animals and the animals talk back. You should expect a response from the animals. So building that very personal thing was something that really galvanized people's uh, appreciation. And so that started building a, a base of support. But it took about five years until the thing really became sustainable from the point of view of not having to kind of really just on hand you, to mouth you, yeah that you weren't on that kind of emergency you know panic mode all the time but you know um we have all these wonderful stories and great donations and things of people who have kind of helped and saved us over the years came in at the last minute and there are so many serendipitous and apparently um you know heaven-sent or magical things that sort of bailed us out over and over so it's <laughs> I think it's kind of a, a testament to the idea that if you put yourself out there there are answers you know the things you don't always have to have it in hand but you uh, be
0: open and then you'll receive kind of thing yeah
2: and and it's extraordinary how many people come and spend you know their honeymoons their their, their vacations any bit of time they get they come here and they scoop poop they do the cat litter they you know the dogs, they serve the animals, and it's the most unbelievably selfless thing. I feel like it just feeds back into the canyon that that sort of that enormous giving that happens through all these volunteers of every age, I mean we had someone I think a hundred. <laughs> so every age from children and they come to 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 the very elderly and they come and they help and they give. It's just remarkable over and over and over again.
0: As Francis and Silva have mentioned already, the no-kill movement of pets, particularly dogs, was the driving force of the Best Friends Animal Society and continues to be to this day. Their mission is to make America a no-kill country by 2025, a target that seemed worlds away four decades ago.
1: When we started doing our work, there were about 17 million Animals being killed in shelters in the United States, and progress in those days was going from high-altitude chamber killing in shelters to the euthanasia serum. There was an assumption coming out of where we were coming from—the idea that you would uh, rescue an animal only to put it down was just nuts. You know, it was no that just wasn't going to happen. Um, in San Francisco, a fellow by the name of Rich Avanzino, who was right in the kind of the belly of the beast took on one of the worst uh the most hated uh municipal agency in the city of san francisco which was the san francisco SPCA. it had a municipal contract uh and in a few years turned it into something that was just beloved by the community because he was committed to making this the city no kill meaning ending the killing of animals as a method of population control so initially what the, the kind of the no kill movement was about was Um, a refutation of killing as a method of population control or as a convenience. Uh, And over time, it's evolved to having kind of metrics and standards and various other things. And now it's identified by the idea of moving shelters to a status where animals are not being killed for space or convenience or time served. That every healthy and treatable animal, um, any animal that has a reasonable prognosis for success, or it does not, you know, behaviorally dangerous, we should do everything we possibly can to see that that animal has a life. So the no kill movement has come to that point now where the idea that say a 90% live release rate or save rate from the shelters is an indication that at that point, the shelter is really doing uh, good work that there's you you allowing for the fact that there are some animals that are always going to be too dramatically injured to be to recover or to be treated or too dangerous to be safely placed now ideally that number is smaller and smaller and smaller Um, but when you're at a 90 percent threshold um, there's a an an acknowledgement that you are doing good work and you are committed to life so you don't get there accidentally the response to that was, no, this is not a necessary evil, it's just evil and we need to do something about it. And so that work was the work of the no kill movement of incrementally changing the way people thought about it and having these kind of models of what this might look like in places like sanctuary, but also in uh, some of these pioneering communities that really did this groundbreaking work to demonstrate this can be done. And the, 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 The way it can be done is by enlisting the community, not by hiding this problem from the community out by the dump, but by involving the community, letting the people know that their help is needed. People love pets and they don't want to see them die.
2: When we first started going out into the streets um, to to raise funds, uh, we were sitting at these tables uh, all day long, every day. And so we were getting a, a lot of requests for help on animal issues. And our whole approach at that time was, it's not rocket science. You can do it. We can help you sort out your problem, um, because up till then it was basically you take it to the shelter if you have a problem, and so we created all kinds of booklets and things, and we got people involved, and we, but we stayed in touch with them. You know, we show them how to take better photographs, how to, to list animals safely, how to interview prospective people and of course the results of all of that was that people then knew where their animal went and the people who got the animal were able to find out the history of the animal it was a much happier more satisfying situation all around plus those people were educated to the fact that no it's not that easy if you take it to the shelter they will be killed and what's happening now through all the work that's been done for 2025 is this kind of thing um on steroids throughout the country
1: the thing is shifting and it's really remarkable and so gratifying after looking back to the the dark old days of how things Mm -hmm. were it's a kind of a different world
0: it's great to to hear that because um now thank you so much for for your clarity on on the no kill concept because you know we all appreciate and certainly me as a vet appreciate the importance of sometimes for, for welfare reasons uh, or, or behavioural reasons, animals do have to be euthanized. But I think the the most important thing about the no kill concept is the intent. Rather than a shelter being where you take your animal to be put down, it now it's moving with the work that Best Friends is doing is to making people just think, actually, that's not what they're for. They're there to try and give them a second chance. And yes, unfortunately, sometimes we do have to make that ultimate decision. Um, but actually, what what you've managed to do is have a 91% reduction in euthanasias, which is an incredible feat and a hell of a legacy.
1: We still have a ways to go in the country, but we've gone from uh, 17 million animals being inappropriately killed in shelters to something like 600,000. Still a lot. Maybe it's even below that now, four or five hundred thousand. But it's, we're still working. We're working on that last. We're on that last mile.
0: Over the years, the couple have had at least fifty-five dogs between them, all with different stories. They even had a spreadsheet of them all. But I wouldn't expect anything less from two people determined to rescue as many pups as possible. But I challenge them both on one difficult question. If you had to pick a heart dog that you identify with on a level like no other, which would it be?
2: There was a little dog that we took in who was coming out of a very, very difficult situation and was very shut down. His name was Oscar. I called him Oscar, we called him Oscar. A little sort of uh, small German spitz actually, but uh, looked more like a Pomeranian, totally black head and white body. And uh, crazy, crazy dog. When we walked up to the place, it was a, woman who said please please take this dog because he's in jeopardy walked up the garden path and I heard this glass shattering bark and I thought that's my dog (laughs) and it was (laughs) and they said you know he'll never come on your lap and all the rest of it he doesn't like men because he flew straight into Francis's lap Never went on our laps after that but in that situation he flew straight into yeah, Francis. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You'll do.
2: And he, he 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 wouldn't be the lap dog I wanted but he was never where he couldn't see me. He always wanted to watch and uh, he was kind of an extraordinary dog.
1: And and you Francis we had so many it feel like you're doing an injustice to, to so many of them but this one particular dog named Teddy who was a uh, a Katrina rescue, and Teddy was a very uh, like a movie dog. You know, looked fuzzy, white. You know, pointy ears. What you would call the a Benji dog, but um, really unique. Um, and Teddy was just so connected and so personable. And you could see at some point or other, Teddy figured out that the best way to get through life was to just make people happy. He was so entertaining and so engaging, and Everybody who met this dog just were bowled over by how the, the effect he had on them, which he just made you laugh. He just made you happy. But the thing was, yeah, Teddy, you are more interesting than a television. You're right. I should be paying attention to you. <laughs> 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 and he would just had so many things and sort of things that he taught himself, whether whatever they were, and they were just utterly engaging and entertaining. But also he was just a total
0: uh, loving dog. From your years with dogs, what would be the one pearl of wisdom that you would impart to the dog owners that are that are listening to this podcast?
1: Well, like we say, if you have a dog that's frightened, treat them like a frightened person. Treat people like frightened dogs. But mainly, um, just be patient um, and listen. They are working so hard to communicate with us. Imagine if we worked as hard to communicate with them. Like I said with Teddy, it's like charades. He would go, "Sounds like first word." You know, it was. It, he was so desperately trying to communicate, and when I realized how paltry my efforts to communicate back, how impatient I was, and I thought, well, "God, how how stupid of me!" I'm, you know, he's really working at this, and I'm just, you know, expecting him to say, "Understand me saying, don't do that." Um, you know because it's 3.30 and I need to go to the store and I don't wanna do, you know, we're expecting these animals to, to, to digest the complexities of our life in a few words. They are working their butts off to kind of communicate with us, let us know how they feel, how they feel about us, what they want, what they need. And I think just be patient, listen, listen to the dogs.
0: They have a lot to say. And what a pearl of wisdom to end such an extraordinary and inspirational conversation with Francis and Silva Batista. You can find out more about the Best Friends Animal Society by going to bestfriends.org to get involved and discover the magnificent sanctuary. It's one to add to the bucket list for sure. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of Unconditional Love Stories. If you haven't already, check out some of the other conversations we've had, especially my chat with Jeff Flocken, president of the International Humane Society, if you enjoyed this one. Be sure to hit subscribe or follow whilst you're here too. So you never miss a new episode released every Thursday. My thanks as always to Front of the Pack for sponsoring and to co for consulting on and producing this podcast. And finally, if you're feeling like there's some space in your family and your heart, maybe grab a coffee and have a little scroll through the local shelter list of dogs up for adoption. You never know, you could be able to start your very own unconditional love story. Catch you next time.